Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. Uh, this is the closing night of the LSE Beverage 2.0 Festival, which is run all week as a part of activities at the LSE to rethink the welfare state over the course of this year. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the LSE. Over the course of the festival, we have tried to tackle each of Beveridge's five giants, which he identified in his 1947 report, and we've tried to reimagine them for today, the challenges of poverty, health and social care, education and skills, housing and urbanization, and the future of work. And we've also had a public vote to try and identify the missing giant that Beveridge forgot, uh, giant issues a modern beverage would have also prioritized. And that popular vote resulted in sustainability being the missing giant. And so that, too, will be represented this evening. So tonight I'm delighted to welcome colleagues from across the school uh, and also members of the wider public for this evening to discuss the six giants. Uh, events this week have shown clearly that these are interconnected issues, but in a world of limited resources, one has to make choices. And so the question for tonight is, which giant should we tackle most urgently to have an impact on society? So each speaker will have five minutes to make their case and make their pitch and explain why their giant is the one which is the biggest problem for the future and which should be the first priority to be solved by 2020. After those pitches, and after we hear all six pitches, uh, we'll, hit, we'll give you a chance to ask them some questions. Uh, you'll have a chance to answer questions here through the mics, but also if those who are watching online can use Poll Everywhere to ask their questions and take part. You can submit your questions by going to pollev.com. Uh, LSE Festival. The link is up on the screen, uh, either via the Poll Everywhere app or by simply typing this address into a web page. Those of you who've attended events this week will be familiar with this process. At the end of the event, we'll take a vote on the six issues discussed today. And again, we'll use the Poll Everywhere app. So I'd encourage you to get your phones out, but please put them on silent. So finally, uh, just uh, before we begin, to remind that for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's events are hashtag LSE Beverage and hashtag LSE Festival. Um, and the event is also being recorded and will be made available on podcast and video subject to no technical difficulties. So with those preliminaries, let me now turn to our first speaker, Adura Bank-Thomas, LSE Fellow in Health Policy and a research fellow at the Center for Reproductive Health Research and Innovation at Lagos State University in Nigeria, and also a fellow at the McCain Institute for International Leadership. And he will make his pitch for health and social care. Adura, over to you. Thank you. Every 30 seconds, one child dies of malaria. Before the end of my five-minute pitch here today, two women around the world would have died and lost their lives trying to bring forth life. 
on some delivery table around the world because of complications of pregnancy. Today alone, 980 people have received some diagnosis of cancer in the UK just alone. And another 330 million people, 4% of the world's population, are having to deal with mental illnesses, mostly triggered by the lack of access to, uh, to get the peace of mind that they need to not just live life, but to do life. The reality today is that humanity has advanced in knowledge and technologies to help improve health and social care available to people. The question is whether we choose to prioritize it or not. And I'm here to convince you that if we want the best bang for the buck, invest in health and social care. At an individual level, when we invest in health, we are investing in every other giant issue. In fact, let me show you how this all links. A healthy child can go to school and get all the education and skills needed for a future of work. If that individual can work, he or she has a better chance of raising an income that allows them to tackle the challenges of poverty while also housing themselves and their families. Of the six giants, one that we cannot control as individuals, or better put, one that is based on chance, is health. Who knows who is going to have some cancer tomorrow? Who knows which woman is going to have some hypertensive crisis while in labor? Who knows what child would have debilitating illnesses that would paralyze them for the rest of their lives? Who knows who will suffer some mental illness that challenges their productivity at work? This is why we have to help people if we want to deal with this catastrophe of health. At the national level, the impact of health on gross domestic product is substantial. An extra year of life expectancy is estimated to raise a country's per capita GDP by 4%. One reason for the rapid increase in labor supply per capita in East Asia, for example, has been the effect of better health. Life expectancy increased from 39 years in 1960 to 67 years in 1990, with a concomitant decline in fertility. Combination of this decline in mortality and fertility rate meant that between 1960 and 2000, the ratio of working age people, 15 to 64, to the dependent population, 0 to 14 and 65 plus, rose from 1.3 to 2, which of course facilitated a higher input of workers per capita into production and a higher GDP per capita. Globally, the uncertainty of epidemics such as Ebola that almost wiped out entire health systems in West Africa just recently makes a compelling case on why we must invest in health. Oh my goodness, we, we need to invest in health now and have resilient healthcare systems now before 2020 more than ever. While of course we lament about the state of the National Health Service here in the UK, and rightly so, because it's not 
perfect as it once was. Do you know how many health systems will pay anything, and I mean anything, to have such a service that is free at the point of use and provides care on the basis of needs and not just the ability to pay? For me, the question is not really which giant we should prioritize, and I know my colleagues will come out here to present their case. It is actually which part of health should we prioritize to get the greatest bang for the buck. I conclude by saying that if we can slay health, then we have slayed the other giants. Thank you. Thank you, Adora. Now I'd like to invite Tammy Campbell, uh, a quantitative researcher based in the center, in LSE's Center for Analysis of Social Exclusion, and in a former life, a government educational, a government social advisor in the Department for Education, to give us her pitch for education and skills. Catherine. Thanks. To persuade you of the importance of the giant of education, I'm actually going to focus on one small corner of the world here in England. Imagine two children. On the left, we have an autumn-born child from a high-income family. And on the right, a summer-born child from a low-income family. My starting point is very simple. At the basic level... These children both have the potential to achieve academically. The month of your birth has no fundamental relationship with your ability to do well. And your family's income level should not affect the chances offered to you through the education system. So, our two children start school. Now, in early primary school, most children are grouped, supposedly by ability, And if grouping is truly by real ability, we should see a mixture across streams of low- and high-income children and of children born in different months. This is not what happens. At age seven, at the very beginning of education, the autumn-born, high-income child has an 80% chance of being placed in the top stream at school. The summer-born, low-income child has a 30% chance. Why? There are biases and errors and false premises in the system. And there's an assumption that children can accurately and usefully be classified even so young. There's scant acknowledgement that this system in itself can determine children's pathways. The children are stratified throughout primary school and along the way they're tested. And of course the test echoes the structure and the awesome-born high-income child is rated more highly. And then comes secondary school. The child from the better-off family is more likely to go to a high-performing school. And who is more likely to get into a grammar school? The high-income awesome-born, of course. By the time they complete their compulsory education, the two children are set far apart. The high-income autumn-born is far more likely to go to a prestigious university. And because of this, they're more likely to end up in politics. And there, they will have the power to create the structure of the education system. 
This does not reflect the original fundamental potential of these two children. Autumn-born, high-income children are not inherently more able than summer-borns from low-income families. To a large extent, these differences in outcomes are a product of the system and the structure. Now, as humans, we're programmed with huge cognitive biases, a bias against believing in the parts played by luck and chance and structural advantages in our own destiny, a reluctance to acknowledge our own privilege. And the people building the structure of our education system are a product of the system, and they've benefited from its structure. Massively disproportionately, they were placed in the top stream and attended selective schools and went to certain universities. They are the high-income autumnborns. And so, they are motivated to maintain the structure, because without it, where would they be and what would they be? So this is why the education system is a giant that needs to be tackled now. The system plays a massive part in determining people's life chances. In a world of limited resources, should we be prioritising the maintenance of privilege? Or should we be breaking down the systems and structures and starting again from first principles? Who do we want to benefit most from education? And why? Thank you, Tammy. Thank you, Tammy. Now I'm going to ask Jamie Woodcock, from a fellow at the LSE in the Department of Management and author of Working the Phones, a study of a call centre in the UK, to give us a pitch for the future of work. Jamie. Thank you very much. Um, so don't let the affiliation with the management school fool you. Uh, in many ways, uh, I'm a sociologist and I want to talk about work. I do My research is about sociology of work. So, of course, I'm going to tell you that work is by far the most important giant. Of course it is. But what I want to do is to tell you a couple of stories to illustrate why I think this is the case. So, under capitalism, work is the relationship through which we are able to gain healthcare, housing, education. Think about the journey that you took to get here to this lecture today. Think about the transport that you travelled on. Who built your home? How the food was produced and transported to you? Think about how this building came into being. Think about the fantastic event staff who put on the beverage events. Think about the people who cleaned this building, who put their time and effort and energy into making sure we could all be here to argue about what are the most important things and the most important challenges. And on that, I want to to give a congratulations like I did in in one of the previous talks to LSE for bringing the cleaners back in-house, or rather for the cleaners for campaigning to be brought back in-house, which I think is a fantastic... Because if we think about many of the social problems in society today, many of those roots come from people who are not able to make a living. You know, the idea that we would have to introduce not only a minimum wage, but also a London living wage for people to actually be able to meet their basic needs... I think shows the problems that work has in contemporary society. And I predominantly do research at the moment on on online work, on gig work, 
And I want to tell you a story of one of my research participants who you know, got a fantastic university education uh, and then found himself working uh, for Deliveroo. He works for a cafe as well and a bar. And I think his story in many ways is typical of the realities that most, of, most young people face today in work. Is he would work late in the evening, he would try and sleep in to get enough rest to go and work at Deliveroo, and then he would cycle for Deliveroo during the day, he'd go on to work in a cafe in the evening, and then go on to a, a third job. And when I asked him what was the biggest problem he found with this work, you know, he said, of course, the pay is not very good, it's really hard work, I cycle a lot, but the biggest problem is being able to eat enough calories in the morning to be able to cycle around delivering other people food in the evening and the afternoon. And I think that's a damning indictment about work, that somebody who many of us might pay to bring us food because we don't have enough time to eat dinner or to prepare dinner ourselves, finds the challenge of eating food or eating enough food one of the biggest challenges of their work today. And so what I want to argue is that it's through work we can see the solutions to other problems. The kind of education that we offer, the kind of health care that we're offering, the kind of housing that we have available to us, all of these things can be solved through work. But we also need to talk about the problems of work itself. And I think if Beveridge was around today, he would look around and would not recognise much of the work that we do. So when we study call centres, for example, and you find a million people working in low-paid, precarious, stressful work, work that for many people, if they were to choose what they would do with their time, it's unlikely many of them would choose to sell insurance over the phone to people who don't want to buy it, (laughs) is to ask a question about why do we spend the majority of our life doing these activities? And that perhaps if we had a say in the kind of work we want, society would be very different. And so what I want to end on is to say that We don't have to look far from the university to talk about work today. So people may or may not know that university workers are on strike across the country uh, the last two days of last week and for another 12 days coming forward. I think it's a damning indictment that in institutions that students now have to pay huge amounts of money with no guarantee of careers afterwards, that many lecturers are now facing 40% pay cuts. But I think the point that I want to make from this is that we're not, we shouldn't just be worried about what's happening with work. We shouldn't just be saying robots are going to come to take our jobs. And instead, you know, vote for this to be the major giant if you want to. But the key thing is to see that it's at work you can affect change. And it's by organising at work that we will get the future of work that we want, not some kind of dystopian future where we only work via smartphones and have no access to the things that we need to live a decent quality life. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to invite Kathleen Scanlon, Assistant Professorial Research Fellow at LSE London, to give us her pitch for housing and urbanisation. Thank you, Manoush, and thanks for inviting me to be here this evening. It's a real pleasure to be here, even though it did mean um, turning down quiz night at my daughter's school, which was particularly bitter because we won last year. Never mind. So I'm going to talk about housing and urbanization, or if I can get the slide up, what Beveridge more colorfully called squalor. Now, 
In a recent poll, 73% of voters in this country said that the lack of affordable housing was the major political issue facing the country. Things were rather different when Beveridge wrote his report in late 1942. London had lived through the blitz, and at the end of the war, a third of the housing stock was either damaged or destroyed. And those serious physical problems of housing persisted long after the end of the uh, the Second World War. This is a photograph taken in 1966 in a suburb of Birmingham, showing the terrible physical conditions that still prevailed in some places. Now, this kind of squalor has not been entirely eliminated, of course. This is a picture taken last year of uh, accommodation in a shed and a garden in Hillingdon that was raided by the council. But let's be, let's be honest, uh, this kind of physical deterioration in this country now is, is mainly a thing of the past. So we're not talking anymore about squalor. What is the issue? The issue, as the government itself recognizes, is that the housing market is broken. This is the cover of the housing white paper that was published early in 2017, Fixing Our Broken Housing Market, it's called. What do we mean by a broken housing market? Well, look at the symptoms. It's becoming more and more difficult for young people to buy their first home. House prices have been rising faster than incomes for a few decades now, and the age at which people can access owner occupation is getting older and older. More and more families are living in private rented housing. In the 1990s, the private rented sector had fewer than 10% of homes in the country. Now it's above 20% and above 30% in London. And whereas it used to be very uncommon for families with children to live in private renting, now it's not at all unusual. There's no security of tenure. There's no uh, assurance that a family will be able to make that a permanent home. We do have still a significant stock of social housing, and that housing is affordable, but we're not building any more of it, or very little more. Instead, we're building a range of so-called affordable products that aren't affordable for people on normal incomes. This has a really corrosive effect on our society. There's a, because of this increase in house prices, which is due to the shortage of new supply, there's an increasing gap in wealth between the haves, who are older people, people who live in London and the southeast, and the have-nots, younger people, people who live particularly in the northern part of the country. And this is the kind of wealth inequality that Piketty talked about in his recent book. The shortage of affordable housing has serious effects on people's lives. People aren't, young people aren't able to leave the parental home, or they're stuck in overcrowded, substandard, rented accommodation, sharing with their friends or eventually their enemies or some strangers for 10, 15, 20 years. It has effects on the economy. People won't move to, to get new jobs, and there are anecdotal reports, and I know it's, it's something that LSE has faced, when people hear about the cost of housing in London, they simply don't want to come here. We need to do, as a society, whatever it takes to conquer this. And we do know what, what it needs. We need to recognize 
that, and here I'm going to talk about London because this is where the pressures are the greatest, that in future, less of our housing will be of the traditional sort with a garden and uh, its own front door, that we'll be uh, looking at denser blocks of flats to provide uh, our new homes. When we look at new housing, developers build what they will make a profit on, uh, what, what makes them a profit. That's, that's what private companies are, that, that's how they operate. That's, not, that's no surprise. But building affordable homes, genuinely affordable homes, often is not a profitable activity. So the public sector needs to get involved again. This is a picture of a scheme called Place Ladywell that's uh, south of Lewisham Center. This was a, a development commissioned by Lewisham Council to house 24 homeless families and built with an innovative modular housing technique where these units can just be craned into place. Finally, I think we need to have the courage to look again at the Green Belt. The legislation that enabled the Green Belt was passed in 1947 and, and was, in fact, one of the legacies of Beveridge's welfare state. It may have been right for 1947. Is it right for 2018? Must every acre of the Green Belt be preserved, or should we take the bold decision to release some well-located bits of it for high-quality new schemes that will house our children and their children? Would that not be a better legacy? Thank you. Thank you, Kath. Uh, I think that was worth quiz night. <laughs> now I'm going to ask Tanya Burkhardt, director of the LSE Center for the Analysis of Social Exclusion and associate professor in the Department of Social Policy at LSE, to give us her pitch for the challenge of poverty. Thank you. So poverty is a big giant, a giant amongst giants. <laughs> The World Bank estimate for 2013 is that 768 million people are living in extreme poverty. And extreme poverty really does mean extreme poverty in the World Bank's terms. $1.90 a day in purchasing power parities. What does living on $1.90 a day mean? That's well below subsistence level. It's a target. It's, it's not a target it's not a nutritional standard. It's an average of the poorest country's national poverty lines. Poverty is also an urgent problem. Every year, 5.9 million children die under the age of five, about half of them from undernourishment. According to the World Food Programme, 795 million people go to bed hungry each night. And we know where they are. This map shows us where the hungry people are, with the redder colours indicating the highest concentrations. $1.90 a day is not sufficient to avoid hunger. In fact, the US Department of Agriculture's minimum food basket comes out at just over $5 a day. That equates to 3.5 billion people across the world living at or below that sort of threshold. And that's without taking into account any other necessities, like fuel, clothing and shelter. So poverty is big, 
and poverty is urgent. But lest we think that this is purely a global problem, poverty is also here as well as there. 1.2 million food packs were distributed by the Trust last year in the UK. That's 1.2 million instances of hungry individuals and hungry families here in the UK, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Analysis in my own centre of neighbourhood-level poverty in London shows concentrations of poverty of more than 55% of households living on means-tested benefits in a large number of neighbourhoods in London, with, again, red showing the areas of the highest concentrations. This map isn't dissimilar to some produced by Charles Booth at the end of the 19th century, the poverty maps of London that you can view here in the LSE library. The geographical distribution of poverty has changed. Less concentration in inner London, more moving out towards some of the outer London boroughs and neighbourhoods. But the incidence remains high. Child poverty in the UK has once again risen to something like one in three. And the Institute for Fiscal Studies projects that it will rise yet further over the next four years, perhaps to 37%. And according to that analysis, about three-quarters of the change in anchored poverty is attributable to the benefit cuts that are expected over the next few years. So poverty is big, poverty is urgent, poverty is here as well as there, and poverty is also fundamental. I think you'll begin to see that there is a theme emerging in our presentations, which is that each giant is claimed to underlie uh, all of the others. And that is no exception for my pitch in relation to poverty. Poverty is the cause of substandard housing and homelessness. Were it not for poverty, people would be well housed. Poverty is associated with underachievement in education, as Tammy's presentation drew out very clearly. Socioeconomic gaps in educational attainment are apparent across all developed countries. And addressing poverty would go a long way to addressing educational inequalities and skills gaps. Poverty underlies health inequalities. People living in the poorest neighbourhoods in England on average die seven years younger than their counterparts in rich neighbourhoods. And they're living with disability for 17 years longer uh, across their lives as a whole. Child poverty has lifelong effects on the accumulation of human and social capital with a consequent impact on employment and wages and job security. And achieving sustainability, the giant that we're yet to hear about, achieving sustainability whilst meeting human needs means tackling excessive consumption and redistributing resources to the poor also. But poverty is not inevitable. At a global level, we've had the Make History campaign, the Millennium Development Goals, Sustainable Development Goals, Inclusive Growth Strategies. These all make a difference. At a national level, child poverty fell substantially during a period of sustained investment in families in the early 2000s using a cross-cutting approach, not just in relation to taxes and benefits, but also tackling uh, health, education uh, and employment. Slaying the giant of poverty is within our grasp, 
And as we do, the other giants will fall like nine pins. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Tanya. And finally, I'm going to invite Rebecca Elliott, who was the winner of our Missing Giant competition, to make the case for why sustainability is the most urgent issue to tackle. Okay. So here is the obvious argument. If you want to address poverty, health and social care, education and skills, (laughs) the future of work and housing and urbanization, you need a planet. (laughs) I doubt very much that I need to convince you of that. The expanding national and global economies that have thus far seemed a necessary condition of our prosperity have also made our ecological footprint larger and larger. And this is compromised biodiversity and natural resources. It's released dangerous levels of greenhouse gases, and it has put more people at intensifying but unevenly distributed environmental risks. So this is not about whether we can thrive. This is about whether we can survive. And here's another obvious and related argument. These are not really siloed issues that can compete. These are not giants that stalk the earth alone that can be taken down individually. These giants work as a team, and all of them get fiercer as our ecological systems degrade. Again, I probably don't have to convince you of that either. So here's what I do want to convince you of in the short time that I have with you this evening. I want to convince you that sustainability is a welfare state issue. In other words, my objective is not to convince you that environmental issues are the biggest of all big problems. My objective is to convince you that environmental issues are in every big problem. And as a result, environmental policy can no longer be thought of as somehow separate from social policy, as somehow outside the boundaries of what we've traditionally defined as the welfare state. Because climbing temperatures rising seas, devastating storms, in brief, a changing climate, reignites with new urgency the question at the center of welfare states. Are we in this together, or are we going it alone? Countries surely need policies that accelerate energy innovation. They need legislation that protects natural places and that regulates polluters. And that's where we've narrowly focused both in how we think about sustainability as a policy issue and how we study it as an academic one. But there is also a social contract at stake here, a question of the distribution of risks and responsibilities, of whether or how risks and costs will be shared. Are we in this together, or are we going it alone? Sustainability is a welfare state issue because how we respond to the threats that we face is an index of the care that we show laborers, farmers, and students for whom the nature of work will and must change. It's a measure of the care we show the poor who need homes that are safe and efficient. And it's a sign of the solidarity that we feel in the face of tremendous uncertainty and adversity. So welfare state scholars have argued that the real crisis of contemporary welfare regimes is the result of a kind of mismatch, a disjuncture 
between traditional social policies with the protections that they offer and the new risks that citizens face. And here we confront a tremendous mismatch. Our welfare states need to evolve to address not only the shifting and intensifying vulnerabilities that come with adapting to climate change, but also to secure the conditions that make lower carbon lives more broadly affordable and accessible. In less than two months, Cape Town, South Africa, will run out of water. As the German social theorist Ulrich Beck observed years ago, climate change is both hierarchical and democratic. Young and old, black and white, rich and poor must now queue to get their water. But of course, some will weather this crisis better than others. And that will depend on their wealth or their poverty, on the state of their health, on the security of their employment and of their housing. However noble in spirit, welfare states in practice have always been built on various kinds of exclusions. They've always parsed the deserving from the undeserving in ways that are racialized, gendered, and classed. So the sustainability challenge is therefore not one of simply securing a status quo in our relationships with the earth and with each other. We need a critical examination of what is sustained and for whom. The sustainability challenge is one of reimagining the welfare commitment within and across national borders, and it's the key challenge facing welfare states today and in the future. Okay, thank you, Rebecca. So, you've heard the pitches. They're all extremely compelling. They're all extremely interconnected. But as the great LSE economist Lionel Robbins said when he defined economics, he said economics is a social science that is about scarce resources and competing ends. So that is our predicament for this evening. In the end, resources have to be allocated to priorities. And that's what we're going to ask you to think about. But before asking you to vote we're going to give you a chance to ask some questions. So I'm going to open up the floor. I've already got a couple of questions here, so I'm going to start with one of them. But please raise your hands and be thinking about a question, and the mics will come your way. So my first question to the panel is, uh, and I'm going to combine two questions here, can any of these problems really be solved by 2020? And can they be solved by actors other than the state? And what are the responsibilities of citizens under the social contract to deliver the actions to solve these problems? I'm going to let you go. And who would like to take that on first? Over to you. Yeah, I mean, in terms of sort of who is responsible um, for the sort of issues of inequitable provision within education, I think there is an argument that the consumers of education, us as parents, we should take on more responsibility for fighting back for what is provided to our children. Um, I'm not sure if responsibility is quite the right word, but I think we, we certainly have the right to protest at the structures to which our children are being subject. So, yeah, we, we have the right. Whether we have the responsibility or not is um, questionable. And I think there's an implicit question about the role of the state versus the private sector versus voluntary versus families. I mean, the welfare state has always had those four 
elements, and it'd be interesting to hear. Adora, I think you wanted to come in, and then return to... Um, I mean, to, I was just keen to quickly respond to if health, the challenges of health can be solved by 2020. Absolutely. Reason? Because we have the strategies that we know can work. You know, over the years, uh, we've done so much research to show that if you give this specific treatment to this, um, to this patient, you know, this is, the kind of, um, this is the kind of response that you get. What we've not had is the scale-up of those kind of strategies to ensure that it can get to the last mile. Um, if we decided to do that between now and 2020, we will get it done. Um, just a quick response to um, the beautiful photo of the earth that we had. I think it's great that we, have, we, would have a, we would have the earth, but we need to be alive to take care of it. So. <laughs> okay. Gloves are coming off as voting approaches. <laughs> Kathleen, you wanted to say something. Um, can we solve the housing um, crisis by 2020? We would be lucky to get planning permission by 2020. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're in February 2018. No way. I mean, you'd be lucky to even have the earth movers starting their work. But what we can do is decide that we really want to do something about it. And I think the role of citizens actually here is hugely important because actually a lot of the barriers that stand in the way of building more housing and more truly affordable housing reflect public opinion. People do not want to build on the green belt on the whole. Politicians reflect that. People don't like high-density blocks of flats going up in their high street. The views of plan- the votes of planning committees reflect that. So I think we all have a responsibility for what's happening, or rather what is not happening. And there is, uh, now, there is now an association called the Yimbies, yes in my backyard, who are, um, who are mobilizing in favor of building more housing. Interesting. Tanya. Yeah. <clears throat> so I tried to indicate at the end of my uh, pitch that poverty is not inevitable and I think it's incredibly important to remember the successes, remember the fact that by some estimates global poverty has halved and remember the fact that more locally uh, child poverty has uh, decreased in a period where it was given sustained attention. So it's not the case that the poor are always with us, not according to many different metrics of poverty. Um, Achieving The end of global poverty and the end of domestic poverty by 2020 is ambitious, but it's those targets, those kinds of targets that were laid out in the Millennium Development Goals that are included in the Sustainable Development Goals that are so important in in mobilising action. The second part of the question was about whether it should be uh, just state action. Uh, And, of course, it needs state action. There's no question, I think, that these huge giants can only be slayed by coordinated action that is compulsory, reinforced by uh, legislation and the full force of what the state and international organisations of governments can, can bring about. But they can't do it alone. So that will be through regulation of the private sector, Uh, and the more enlightened parts of the private sector that will embrace that freely. It's through civil society and civil society organisations campaigning to put the pressure on governments that the governments themselves need in order to take action, Uh, and indeed through the general public uh, at events like this, at other events, uh, making their voices heard to say, yes, this is a priority, this is what we want our governments to do. Jamie, and then Rebecca. Yeah, I think... 
when we talk about the state in these discussions, I think it's important to remember that, that Beveridge didn't discover all of these problems 75 years ago. People knew that they existed already. Uh, and I think it's important to think that the action from the state was not a gift to people. It wasn't a kind of benevolent action to say, oh, we've suddenly noticed things are really horrible for most people and we'll fix it. These were concessions won by the workers' movement. These were things that people fought for and won. And the reason that we don't have contemporary ones is we don't have a workers' movement that is fighting for them. Uh, and so I think rather than pitching it in terms of the state and this kind of broad conception of, of citizens, you know, and unfortunately many workers today are not citizens, you know, many workers are migrant workers without that status, I think we have to repoliticize these things so they're not going to be given to us. You know, sustainability isn't something that people are benevolently going to change. And so actually these things that we have to fight for and, to not sound too glib, we can fight for these things through work. If we all stopped working, we could change things very quickly. You wouldn't be able to get home for a start. <laughs> Rebecca. Uh, this perhaps follows directly on that point. I mean, in the, in the area of sustainability, something that people often say to me on Twitter uh, is that you know, energy innovation is really what this is all about and that private markets need to kind of lead that that charge. And that's true, but markets need states, and they always have. They need states to set the rules. They need states to define the assets, um, the commodities, and so forth. And this has a politics to it, right, where, you know, my younger brother, for instance, uh, is a wind turbine commissioner, uh, left his career as an economist, actually, to become <laughs> a wind turbine engineer. And he surely works on wind farms with people who don't care about climate change, don't have a real politics about it, but you can bet that they care about their jobs and they care about supporting policies that make it easier for companies like their employers to grow their business and maintain those jobs. Um, so there are a lot of kind of synergies between what's going on in market spaces to innovate and to get us further down the path towards a, a lower emissions future, but they go hand in hand with the kinds of politics um, that drive action at the state level as well. Okay, I'm going to turn to the floor. Uh, any questions? Anyone would like to... Right here, if we could get a mic here, and then one back there. Thank you very much. Um, it's been really interesting to hear all of your thoughts. Um, if I could play devil's advocate, um, I would say to Rebecca that the first five giants can be incorporated within the global economic system that we have. But I'm not convinced that sustainability, sustainability can. I think you alluded to that when you opened your talk, that the expansion of markets has resulted in increased consumption in a way that doesn't put sustainability first. So I wonder, even beyond 2020, whether you think that sustainability can be dealt with in a meaningful way unless we fundamentally rethink our global economic system, because it seems to me that the, the green activities that are existing and that are growing will remain at the periphery because they aren't conducive to profit effectively. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think one of the things that's so exciting about sustainability and thinking about sustainability in the context of the welfare state Right, is that the welfare state kind of grew and flowered in what many described as the golden age of capitalism. And I think 
you know, what thinking about sustainability as a giant facing welfare states equips us to do is to think a little bit more radically about capitalism as we know it uh, and the kinds of relationships to the natural environment that it seems to imply. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, there's kind of low-hanging fruit and there's more, more radical visions of, of what sustainability might be. I mean, it's a good sustainability policy to provide housing that is energy efficient, for instance. That kind of fits within our, our existing paradigm. But then, you know, you can also think uh, about the kind of more radical possibilities of a social right to housing, that, you know, perhaps having housing being at the center of our, our model of social provision, that's why ownership is so important, you know, maybe that's something that needs to be rethought. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's... It, there are kind of conversations going on about decoupling, whether that's kind of reasonable to think about, or a steady state economy. I mean, there, these ideas have been circulating for some time, and I think that, you know, in, in terms of thinking about where the LSE might intervene, we should be a place to have these conversations. George. Yes, Director, I'd like to pick up on your quote from Lionel Robbins, that economics is about um, allocation of resources, difficult decisions. Uh, one of our distinguished economics professors, uh, Danny Kwa, uh, used to say that the economic crisis, the global economic crisis from 2008, led to a $25 trillion correction. Now, I thought we had six very nice presentations this evening, very persuasive. So if I divide $25 trillion by six, <laughs> that's, you know about $4 trillion for each of them, and I think that, you know, might move things along very nicely. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> it's one of the things I learned and why I worked on the financial crisis, you know, having spent most of my career in international development where you want to build things and invest in things, but sometimes preventing bad things from happening is as important as building new things because we could have saved $25 trillion. Anyway... Other questions? One in the very back and one here. Sorry, I, I forgot to ask if you could identify yourself. Thanks. Um, my name is Peter Kane. I'm I work in housing. If we're going to quote Lionel Robbins about scarce resources and competing ends, I think the housing is quite interesting because more than half of all UK bank lending goes into residential property. And that has big implications for the industry in this country and where investment goes. We are relatively low on um, investment in the private sector industry. And I would challenge the query, the suggestion, that housing is about numbers. It's about access and cost. Just one example. Recently, there was a, um, a suggestion that densification was the solution. Council housing estates with 30,000 homes were densified to 50. The number of affordable social rented fell on those estates to 22. That's why tenants oppose it. That's why they're NIMBYs. But there are examples. Islington is a good one, where tenants and Hackney have supported densification where it has produced low-cost housing. I think that we need to address the financialization of housing and the, and the short-term speculation that leads to that. The level of private sector housing production has not changed over the last 30 years. The profits of builders have gone up. 
Kathleen, did you want to say anything about that? Um, Thank you. Uh, we could. Uh, <laughs> there's there's a clearly a huge amount to discuss. I uh, absolutely agree that uh, pure numbers will not solve the problem. We are so far from a market system in the housing system in the UK that uh, affordability has to be built in through the planning system in in and in some way or provided by government subsidy. Um, but more, having said that, more housing is needed. The question is what percentage of it will be affordable and how will we, and how will we make it that way? Can I just follow up? One of the written questions I've got uh, is for you, Kathleen. Singapore has more or less eliminated homelessness by building 80% of residential buildings in the form of high-quality but economically high-rise flats and heavily subsidizing built-to-order housing for first-time buyers. What lessons can the UK learn from Singapore? (laughs) Well, one lesson, I guess, would be that it's a lot easier if you have a government that um, doesn't um, respond to political pressure as readily and just does what it wants. Um, so that's one way of approaching it. Um, but I, I, I agree that, that, that there are, are many things to be learned from Singapore in terms of building technique, in terms of architecture, in terms of sustainability. But I think importing the Singapore model here would um, be, be very difficult. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think I had one back here, yes. Uh, Thank you. My question is, in the 21st century, why do we still have these giants with us? Is uh, is it possible for the people to take governments to court at The Hague for crimes against humanity using the giants as our evidence? Okay, let's... uh... Rights-based approach, Tanya? I I was going to say, in one sense, of course, you're absolutely right. If we look at the UN um, Declaration of Human Rights, uh, it encompasses economic, social and cultural rights alongside uh, civil and political rights, uh, and that includes rights to housing, includes rights to health, it includes rights to education, it includes rights to a decent standard of living, to good quality work. So in that sense, you're absolutely right that those things are guaranteed to us. Um, But there is no sense in which they're going to be given, as a colleague here was was saying. They do need to be fought for, and they need to be achieved through the kind of continued pressure that these major campaigns um, that we've seen over the last several decades uh, have begun to produce. But it's it's a work in progress. Other one here, and the lady behind. That's right. And then we'll go to the two in the back. Actually, maybe I'll take. Can I take several in one go? Maybe I'll take four questions in this batch, and then I think we'll have to start to wrap up. Hi, I'm Daniel. Um, I study politics. Thank you very much for these interesting pitches. We're focusing on this year 2020, but as a convinced European, half Luxembourger and half. Spanish person. I'm focusing more on March 29, 2019, uh, where this country is going to leave the European Union. And my main question for each um, of the pitches and the representatives of it would be, 
how can these topics become big enough in the public sphere for politicians to react on them? Because they've been around, and they've been around for a long time. Um, if I look at my tuition fees or my living costs in London, or poor people in the city, I mean, you just have to go out to, on the street. Um, I think, how bad does it have to be for politics to react? And are we not sort of numb because of the extreme flow of bad news and especially looking uh, at the Brexit situation right now, um, what, what has to happen for politicians to react? That would be my, my big question. Okay, very good. The lady behind, I'm going to come to the panel at the end of these four questions. You can have your final pitch before we vote. Uh, yes, the, young, the lady behind. Um, so it kind of follows on from the last two questions, I guess. Um, and I know that we are kind of, not exactly playing the game, but we are kind of playing the game, voting which one is most important. And we all know that that's not exactly the point but it's I think it's quite interesting um do you feel that it might be more valuable and the point because we seem to have kind of got to a crux point with all of these it really has like we've been talking about they've been around for a long time and we really are starting to get numb to the fact that we're just like well everything's awful so we may as well just let the planet die <laughs> um do you, do you think do you think that we should there is more value in taking things one step at a time that we really should be going okay this one first this one needs to be fixed first for us to be able to carry on we need to have a planet for us to be able to have a planet we need to live for us to be etc do you think it is more valuable to go we fix that then we move on or do you think there is we still have time to kind of go okay we can kind of live with small steps at a time and approach all of them at once? Or do you think it's got to the point where we're like, we have to just do it now because we're running out of time? Okay, thank you. There were two in the back there. Maybe take those two. Hi, um, I'm a student here, and my question follows on from that. Um, I was just wondering, like... Uh, how we can encourage policymakers to think of all of these giants uh, uh, as interrelated. So, uh, as all of you mentioned uh, or argued that they they could be conceived as underpinning each other, uh, I I think that's true, and they uh, obviously interplay with one uh, one another. So, how can we encourage policymakers to take a cross giant approach, if you will? <laughs> Pass the microphone over. And then maybe I'll take the last one lady here. Um, I'm also a student here. My question also relates to the interconnectedness of these issues. Is that, if you um, could just speak up sorry. a little bit. Um, that uh, my education, arguably my, my health, suffers from the fact that I have to work very hard. I am not from the globe-trotting global elite that mostly attend LSE. I don't get very much support from home. Rent in London is quite expensive. Um, my question to you, uh, Dame Shafiq, would be why LSE makes millions of pounds of profit from its halls when now I am suffering to literally attend the lectures that I'm paying so much money for because you're putting money in, uh, into I don't know what. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that one. Um, my question is, I'm just wondering what each of you think is the next step that the government should be taking in each of the respective giants to actually bring about the change that you all want. Okay. Definite theme there. Let me do halls first. Uh, just, we do actually provide huge amounts, and we've just increased the amounts we provide for bursaries for halls. We, provide, we, we actually have below market rents in our halls, so we do try and 
focus all the investment in residences for the LSE in below, providing below market rents and let those students who can afford to pay more go on the commercial market. So it's, we have quite a deliberate approach to try and support students who can't afford to pay market rents in, uh, in London. But let me now turn to, um, maybe I'll take you in reverse order uh, to let you make your final pitch and respond to very much a common theme of urgency. How do we get these issues addressed and together? Uh, yeah, so this, this question about the kind of interrelatedness of this or how do you address these together, I mean, I think, I mean, that, that was more or less the thrust of my pitch was that we need to kind of mainstream environmental policy into social policy. And there are a number of ways that we can do that. We can do that in housing. Um, we can do that in the way we support employment um, in kind of <laughs> equipping workers to make a transition to a cleaner energy economy. Um, these, are, these are ways in which these, these issues necessarily coexist and commingle and kind of can be addressed together. Um, and I do think that there's reason to be optimistic. Um, I mean, the kids are all right. And, you know, if there's so much kind of activism going on around a lot of these issues that, you know, we wake up every morning and we think everything's terrible, um, that, you know, part of it is is feeling more or less like we just need to get out of the way and, and let, the, let the kids lead the, the charge. They're suing polluters in court over climate change. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't despair. Um, and I do think that there's reason to be ambitious and to make big claims. Good. So um, we had a session just, just earlier this afternoon where we were talking about LSE giants on, on poverty, and I was talking there about Amartya Sen's work. Uh, Amartya Sen's work absolutely puts this multidimensionality at its core and arguing that all of these giants, which he would might term capabilities, are interrelated and need to be looked at together and that our conventional approaches to understanding economic growth, for example, as measured by GDP, um, are inadequate to providing us with guide to uh, the types of action that we need to take. So I think part of it is about reframing the way that we think about economic progress, the way that we think about social progress, to incorporate that multidimensionality uh, at its core. Uh, in terms of how do we persuade policymakers to take action, or if you like, how do we persuade the elite, the powerful, those who've done well out of the system thus far, uh, to take action? I think there is an interesting new development in the recognition of the way in which inequality is harmful, not just for those at the bottom, but also for those at the middle and at the top. Um, one can see that in the fact that the uh, IMF have begun to express concerns about inequality as a, as a bar to continuing economic growth, uh, rather than seeing it as uh, growth promoting, as was the previous orthodoxy, uh, and through a number of other uh, international developments expressing considerable concern over the scale of inequality. So I think when it begins to become a problem for the rich, then uh, we be may begin to see uh, more action on the types of giants that we've all been discussing tonight. Um, looking at the question of what would be the first step I'd like to see, I'd like to see the government announce uh, a program of new towns to be begun by 2020 um, at transport hubs in the Greenbelt, some of them, and, and outside, and they would bring together the highest levels of sustainability and design, walkable, cyclable, 
health-promoting um, uh, qualities in their design, cutting-edge education, and, of course, skills and training, and to tackle poverty. tackling poverty, <laughs> just bringing it all together. <laughs> but no Over to you. Yes, skills and training and work. Oh, yes. The workers would build the whole thing, of course. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jamie, your last pitch. (laughs) Perhaps some of us wouldn't want to live out in the green belt, but we'll see. Um, So the pitch that I want to make, again, is not that that work is... I mean, work is a giant, but it's also the leverage through how we change all of these things. Um, And I think there's a worry. I have a worry when we say, how do we get these important people to listen to us and not destroy the planet and not have us die in horrible conditions and you know all this terrible stuff why are we letting people get away with it and why are we saying that it's someone a single person in power who is the person who has has the the final say over this is this is part of the problem is we've waited so long for these people to say that they will make us better off that they will give us decent housing that they will educate us that they will provide health care it's simply not good enough and that change comes through through your work in the here and now and that comes through whether you're a cleaner at LSE organising, whether you're a delivery driver who decides to join a small trade union to fight back, whether it's about your lecturer saying, I don't deserve to not have enough pension at the end of my career to be able to, to live a decent life. And what that means is not saying, please, politician, help me. It's about going back to your colleagues and saying, let's do something about this. So vote for this one if you want to, but the better thing is to join a trade union. <laughs> Um, yeah, so sort of in some sympathy and following on from that and addressing the first and the last question there about sort of what should and could government be doing immediately to help improve education, I think the best thing that government could do right now is step back um, and stop over-regulating education because that's what's happening. Too much is being imposed and prescribed from primary school right through to universities. And, you know, if this over-prescription... Um, was ceased uh, and educators were allowed to work as professionals and to grow things and to educate, then we'd have a very good start to making a positive change. Okay, thank you. Uh, Adora, last word. Yeah, so um, if you've ever been ill before, um, like chronically ill and admitted in the hospital, you would understand why the, the so much value that we put in having our eyes working, our limbs working, and being able to do everything we do and just live life and enjoy life. Health is a global problem. It's a leveler. Rich, poor, high income, low income, you don't want to be healed. Um, what I would say is that the Sustainable Development Goal Framework um, that has, um, that's going to run through to 2030, if we redraw it, and the World Health Organization has done this, putting health at the center of it, we would make a lot of difference. The good thing, like I mentioned previously, is that we have the strategies that work. We know the vaccines that we need to give out. We know the interventions that will save lives of women when they want, in situations of emergency when they want to have babies. And continuously, we have wonderful academics who are researching innovative technologies to help us deal with non-communicable diseases. Let's slay health, and we'll deal with the rest of the guys. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, so before closing the festival, I think this is the moment when we vote. Obviously, these things are incredibly interconnected, but nevertheless, one has to start somewhere. So if you could go to the... 
pollev.com LSE Festival website. And as you vote, we will start to see the results uh, as you're voting. I'm going to give you a bit of time. This is tense. This is very tense. Come on, somebody vote for Alvin. Okay, I think I'm going to give it one more minute. I'm going to go and stand over here. Okay, I think we have, I think we've stabilized. Have we stabilized? Anybody else need to vote? Okay, I think the winner is the future of work. There you go. So, very good. So it just leaves it with me then to say thank you to our panel for being so game and making such excellent pitches. Uh, And thank you in the audience for participating. Um, A big objective of this festival of Beverage 2.0 was to spark public debate on what I think all of you would agree are some of the most important issues of our time. And I think on that measure, I think we can declare success. The events have been lively, packed out, and there's been already huge following uh, in social media and on podcasts and videos. The entire festival will be podcast and video and provided on video, and that will be up online soon. So if you miss something, you can catch catch it up later. Uh, And our discussions on the theme of Beverage 2.0 will continue throughout the academic year at the LSE. There'll be further events throughout the year as we think about these important issues. I also wanted to take an opportunity to thank everyone across the LSE who's who's made this festival happen. It has been a truly collective effort between faculty, staff, our fantastic event staff, our catering staff, uh, it really has, everyone has done this on top of their normal jobs because they really care about the issues and want to see this debate happening. So thank you to all of you. You have done a fantastic job. And please join all of us for a drink outside to mark the end of the festival and to continue the debates and deliberations. Thank you very much. Thank you.